If you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 8. As we're going through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. We had the Sermon on the Mount not that long ago, right, just a couple weeks ago. And we've moved on from that. And then last week when we started chapter 8, it says that Jesus came down from the mountain. And we had a thematic element to the book. So I've mentioned this. Matthew's gospel is more thematic than chronological. And we had the themes of healing last week. And now when we come to part 2 of chapter 8, we have really... Starting with verse 18, you will see that these things connect. We're going to finish the chapter tonight. We're going to read it in just a second. But there's a, there's a phrase that drops, uh, pops up at us, and it's the other side. The other side of what? It's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is very different than that side of the Sea of Galilee, as we will see if you're not familiar with the story. So the text tonight builds with this introduction of discipleship, the apostles, or well, the disciples getting on a boat with Jesus, the storm, and then going to the other side and what they encounter there, the, the exceedingly violent men, the demon-possessed men. And, but what really connects the text together tonight is the other side, and we might say call to the other side because there are great principles about being a disciple and following Jesus in this story that we can connect to the idea of the other side because Jesus meets us here, but he's going to take us there. If we want to be in Christ or a new creation, all things have passed away, all things are new. So we're being transformed, and the way we're being transformed is by living a life of faith, and the life of faith takes us from what we know and are comfortable with to steps of faith to what we don't know are uncomfortable with that we might grow and become more like Jesus. And that's the other side. So hold that thought in your minds as we study this text tonight whether and if you don't know Jesus personally just know this that the other side is the good side it's the right side and it's the side of life it's the side of passing from death to life from despair to hope and from uh, condemnation to justification and and hell to heaven it's it's the right side but it's a process that God wants to work in our life to make us more like Jesus and that's what we're going to see tonight in the text so we pick it up tonight with that introduction in Verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. And then a certain scribe, that's one who studied the Old Testament, he came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples, he said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee, a very large lake, if you will. It's big. I've been there. It's, it's large. Think like Lake Tahoe, maybe a little larger. You can surf in it when the wind's blowing. So I'll give you an idea. It can get turned up. Verse 24, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And then his disciples said to him, uh, they came to him and they awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he had come to the other side, to the country of Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, 
What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a good way off from there, there was a herd of many swine or pigs feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of the swine. And he said to them, Go. And so when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. The other Gospels tell us it was about 2,000 pigs. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of action right there in that story. Verse 33, then those who kept them fled, and they went into the city and told everything, uh, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. It's a fascinating story, and it all connects, as I said, because it starts with great multitudes and the command. He gave the command to go to the other side. Great multitudes but a command to go to the other side where there's very scary, exceedingly (laughs) scary men. The other Gospels tell us men that were naked that could not be tamed and no one could go that way. We'll come back to them later on. But that's what was on the other side. But God's going to do a great work on the other side. He's going to teach them ministry lessons by what happens, what they see, and what they're a part of on the other side. So this conversation with these two different people who say, oh, the one says, I'll follow you, and, and the other one says, but at first got to do this. And then they, there's only so many tickets on the boat, and only a few get on the boat. And then this is what happens on the boat. Then they get to the other side. This is what happens. And this, this apex, this amazing story, one of the other Gospels tells us that when the city saw the, one of the men clothed and in his right mind, they begged Jesus to leave. They would rather have two crazy men terrifying everyone in the dark and making a long way to go around them to avoid them than see them in a right mind touched by Jesus. And that's the way some people are. And by the way, that's the way some cities and countries are. If you haven't figured that out. So it is kind of a difficult ending in that they begged him to depart from their region. And we know from the other gospels, he did depart. Because Jesus, in in time, space, and matter, in in the time of self-determination, he doesn't force himself on, on people. He'll, he will draw people to himself, but he'll never force you robotically to go against the self-determined will that he gives all, all, all human beings. The perfect accountability is in eternity, where he does have the final say on everything, but in this side of eternity, he gives us that choice. And if a city says, we don't want you, go, he would respect that. Now, as I mentioned this other side starts the text, and the other side is in the text. They start on this side of the Sea of Galilee, the Capernaum area where Jesus had begun to establish his ministry, and they end up on the other side. And you can, you can learn a lot by communities because on this side of the Sea of Galilee, there was lots of synagogues. People were God-fearing as a whole. There was moral standards that affected society. There was at least less evident evil. And more fear of the Lord. There are many scribes and religious leaders. But on the other side, there's two crazy guys out of their mind, demon-possessed, that terrify everybody. There's people raising pigs, which was against the law in the Old Testament for a specific reason that was limited to that covenant at that time. They're just doing what they want to do. They've got naked people out of their mind, and they've got people raising thousands of pigs, and that's the kind of city they are. Many of you know back in 2008, I did a prayer walk. 
from San Ysidro all the way to Maricopa, Kern County, where I prayed for our state and I prayed for our country. I walked Coast Highway all the way in increments. Not at one time, but by the time I finished, I was doing 30 miles a day. One of those nights, uh, one of those days, I walked from the Los Angeles River there at Seal Beach. You know where Seal Beach goes into New, uh, Long Beach and right there, and it's a nice area. And it says entering Los Angeles County. And so I had Hannah at the time drop me off there. Jennifer had a women's ministry that night with WG. And, and I said, just come pick me up. I'll be in Redondo Beach or Hermosa. It's like 22, 23 miles. I'm going to prayer walk this way. So that night, that late afternoon and that night, I went through Long Beach on a Friday night. The cops pulled me over and said, you better get out of here. <laughs> so what are you doing? I was like, I'm praying for Long Beach. Like, you couldn't do it at home? <laughs> And I, I said, no, I, I need to do it. And he's like, well, I suggest you do it before dark so I don't, we don't find you on the backside of the 710. I'm like, oh, I've got faith. He's like, good for you. And as soon as he left, I'm like, I'm going to walk a little faster. Because uh, <laughs> I got faith and common sense. So I, I, did, I did pick up my pace a little bit. I'll never forget it. I was reading Psalm 119 out loud when they pulled up and told me I, I should get out of Long Beach before it got dark. Uh, it was pretty interesting. But anyways, I made it all the way to Hermosa Beach that night. I, I, I all the way to Hermosa Beach. And something that really got my attention, I've never forgotten it. When I went through Redondo Beach, I noticed something. Because when, you, when you're walking, it just goes slower, right? It's like the old, you know, the mission trail. You walk 30 miles, you connect all the missions all the way to Northern California. 30 miles is, you know, eight hours. You get, if you're walking, you're talking. You get to think about things. You see things. You're not in a hurry. And I noticed something. When I got to Redondo Beach, I noticed everything was clean. I didn't see graffiti. I come through Wilmington, of course, you know, like a port town. And, but I, I got to Redondo Beach, and I noticed, hey, there's, there's really no trash or graffiti. This city's kind of clean. And then I noticed churches. And I suddenly realized there's lots of churches. There's a church here. There's a church there. And there's a church here. I was like, well, okay, that's interesting. But the moment I came to Hermosa Beach, there was trash and bad, naughty newspapers and graffiti, and liquor stores, and people that looked like they lived on the other side, wandering the streets. And I never forgot that, because I realized one city chose this, and another city chose that. And that's the way it works. God showed me that on that night. Jennifer picked me up at 1130. I said, hey, you know there's a big difference between Redondo Beach and Hermosa Beach. And I've noticed multiple things. And I didn't see any churches in Hermosa Beach. I'm not saying there aren't any. I'm just saying I didn't see any. And so it, it, that's what it's like to the other side. Because this side of the Sea of Galilee is like, it was like this. But on the other side, it's like that. It's scary. And I'm thinking if we live on this side, our property's probably worth more. Our income's probably more. And we probably feel a little bit safer. We're not really interested in going to the other side. I like this side. I mean, if you gave me a choice of between, you know, between living in Dana Point or the Inland Empire, I'm going to choose Dana Point because it's a little more appealing, not to mention the sea breeze. We're, we're like that. We have natural dispositions, and we want to have Jesus and feel comfortable. In fact, if you told me, hey, you can retire in Dana Point on the beach with Jesus and just do something on Sunday mornings, kind of low-key, and you got these tenured benefits as a minister of Calvary Chapel, I'd be like, sign me up. I'm going to Salt Creek every day. But if you said, no, and when you're in your 70s, we want to really stretch you. The Lord's sending you to a, a third world nation where you're subject to all kinds of diseases you've never been exposed to, 
and I want you to lose your life and serve these people, and I want you to give up everything you've worked hard to accumulate in uh, 62 years in America. I'd be like, well, I don't like that. I don't like that plan at all. Well, that might just be the other side. But if the, if the Lord or you or someone representing the Lord, a prophetic word would say, well, the thing is, you're going to get lazy and soft and finish soft and short of God's plans for you, playing it safe and Dana Point until you're 82 or 92. But if you go to this third world country, a country you'd swore you'd never go to, and you serve the Lord there down the stretch and learn this language and that much more glory and eternity, which would be the better decision? Of course, the latter of the two. But we move toward the comfort of the flesh as opposed to the risk of the spirit. And you have such a contrast in this story. They're on this side, but Jesus is like, hey, I'm commanding you to go to the other side. America's really good with comfortable Christianity. We've done it really well. In fact, better than any, uh, probably any nation in history. But the, the legacy of the church of Jesus Christ being fruitful and impactful is the church of Jesus Christ that takes risk. People in Jesus' name who willingly go out for adventure without the guarantees and go for it. And that's what this story is about. These men, some of these men on this boat are going to change the world. These men who fished on this lake, who are scared to death on this night. This is, this is boot camp 101. This is like Bud's Navy SEAL training for the ministry. We're going to rock you. Jesus is rock. There's no soft landing like, hey, welcome to my seminary. Welcome to my school of ministry. Oh, aren't we going to study like the Torah or something? No, we're going to get on a ship on a lake where you have your livelihood, and I'm going to scare the daylights out of you while I'm sleeping. And then we're going to go, look, we're going to go confront these naked men and cast those demons into pigs, and then we're going to be rejected by the city. You ready for ministry? I'm not sure. But that's the way the human experience can be on the other side. When you think about 2024 and being used mightily of the Lord, think the other side. If you're writing goals for the year, think the other side. Because the other side is where we grow, and it's where we mature, and we're prepared for eternity, and the fruits and the rewards, and the stewardships of eternity. Not on the safe side, but on the other side. The safe side is known. See, we know what we know this night. But the future of faith with the Lord can be so unknown. So let's... Think about these things in this story tonight. The first thing is the separation of the multitude from disciples. Did you catch that? There's great multitudes. And, you know, you can have big churches. You can have big ministries and big followings and all kinds of likes and dislikes and comments and blogs and YouTubes and podcasts and this and that. But, you know, when you really get down to going to the other side, being scared to death and half-naked people being cast, the demons being cast into pigs, you know, you kind of lose your, your like followers. There's not a lot of people that like to follow and get the weekly uh, podcast update of that kind of stuff. This is the real stuff. This is the Jesus stuff. And what Jesus does, he gets the multitude and he separates the disciples from the multitude. Now, we just saw in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said, wide and broad is the way that leads to death and many go thereby. He said, but narrow is the way that leads to life and few enter thereby. That's the way you want to go. And that's what he's doing right here. He's got a multitude. Uh, you know, he just, we, just said, we just saw in the previous verses, he healed everybody. If you're healing everybody, you're going to get a big following. But the following of Jesus wasn't about healing everybody. 
It was about the call to discipleship. So right away, when we think about the other side, is we need to become disciples, not churchgoers, not part of the multitude that just makes a convenient thing. We need to be disciples. And what we learn in this first part of the story, point number one, is that Jesus separates disciples from the multitude. He separates disciples from the multitude. And notice in this story that the scribe, who's very learned in the Old Testament and the scriptures, he knows the scriptures, the scribe. He's like, hey, this guy, this guy's healed everybody. This might be the Messiah. This rabbi, I want to I be with this rabbi. And he says, I will follow you anywhere. What, do you think Jesus is going to be the king like David and conquer the Romans? Do you think Jesus is going to be like the high priest like Caiaphas and Ananias, co-high priest, and rule at the highest religious power like the Metropolitan of the Russian Orthodox Church or the Archbishop of Canterbury of the Anglican Church or the Pope himself of the Catholic Church or whoever the most important person in Calvary Chapel is? Like that kind of following where you actually, you know, you have the nice cars, gated communities and all this stuff. Are you following him that way? I'll follow you anywhere because you're moving up. You're ascending and climbing because you're healing everybody. You can solve any problem. That's the kind of followers he got early on in his ministry. Jesus said the Son of Man has... Foxes and birds have more certainty of where they can rest than the Son of Man. What I find interesting about this story is, he, what do you say? I have nowhere to lay my head. I mean, that's no, there's no guarantee. When you have anywhere to lay your head, that's how he came into the world, right? Born in a manger. His parents couldn't get a room at the hotel. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So in his first coming, he's got nowhere to lay his head. All these 140,000 homeless people in California alone, I think it's 140,000. It's a lot of people who have nowhere to lay their head. Quite a problem. It's, it's nationwide. It's worldwide. Go to India. How many people are homeless that have nowhere to lay their head? The human experience has plenty of people who have nowhere to lay their head. And sometimes we're going to follow Jesus or a religion or some philosophy because it gives us a better chance and a better place to lay our head. And certainly for this scribe, it looks like Jesus is trending. His likes are going up. His followers are going up, if you will. And Jesus said, don't let this throw you off. I've got nowhere to lay my head. What I find most interesting about this statement is Jesus sleeping in the boat in the next passage. He literally has nowhere to lay his head. He's so busy about the Father's business, he doesn't have a nice room at the inn or here or there on Capernaum. He's literally in the boat in the worst storm ever, probably a demonically inspired storm, He's so exhausted, he's sleeping in the boat. Fishermen who made their living on this lake are scared to death, probably more than they've ever been in their life. Jesus is so exhausted from all the ministry he did, he's sleeping on the boat. So it becomes exhibit A that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's crashed out on the boat. Zeal's a funny thing. When Jesus taught about the parable of soils, he talked about where that, that seed goes in, it sprouts up right away, but then when there's persecution, that, that seed, it wilts from the heat of the sun, and it represents people who start out like this, but don't take root, and then they melt away. The advantage of being in ministry 35 years is seeing how often that actually happens, whether you like it or not. I've seen the parable of the soils lived out time and time again at Calvary Chapel Vista in the late 80s. In Virginia Beach in the 90s, in Vermont in the 90s, in 
again in other churches in the 90s and then Calvary Costa Mesa in the 2000s and here over 19 years now. Emotion can be misleading. There's a place for emotion because, of course, God gave us emotion. But remember, it's always fact, faith, feelings. That's the order. The fact is the promises of God and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Faith in the person of the Lord, faith in his promises and what he's going to do. And then the feelings are subject to that. I literally pray every day that I would uh, be situationally aware and I would respond and not react. And that I would have dominion over my feelings. And I've done better this year. No one's a perfect stoic, if you will. But you know, the Proverbs are filled with Proverbs like the person that can shut his mouth instead of babbling is counted wise. Because any fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. And the multitude of words is not lacking. So I've just worked a lot on this year. Like when I feel like I need to say something, ask myself, do I really need to say something? And am I re reacting right now because I'm upset about this? And what good is it going to do? Or is there a better response? That's what I mean by being a better version of you at the end of 2023 than the start of 2023. If you just let the Lord do those little things. But emotions can overwhelm us. And, and you, usually what shoots up like a fireworks really quick with the Lord and has no foundation explodes and falls apart and melts away and often denies the Lord. What you catch them with, you've got to keep them with. And if you catch them with bells and whistles and a dog and pony show and all these emotions, then you've got to keep them with that. So you've got to keep coming up with new ideas to entertain everybody, maintain everybody, and, and hit the emotions. And oh, and ooh, and like, if you catch people for Christ with the word of God exalting Christ, then you can keep them with the word of God and exalting Christ. What you catch them with, you keep them with. I, although I can be emotional at times, I, I realize like my confidence isn't that I can have perspiration, but it, that the word of God has inspiration. And so the, the mistake of this scribe is he had all that scriptural knowledge and the one who's fulfilling it is right before him. But Jesus, Jesus knew his heart. He's like, hey, you know what? Like you're, you're making a big claim right now to follow me anywhere. In three years time, I'm going to be hanging on the cross in Jerusalem the laughing stock of the nation, uh, uh, the laughing stock of humanity that I'm dying for. So there's there's a there's a misleading that emotions can get where we get really excited, and it just it's based upon emotion. It, it works that way in a relationship. If a relationship is based upon emotion, it will fall apart eventually, because emotion will fall apart. Then there's the other person where it it's stated that Jesus said he's like, hey, I got to take care of my my father. Now, I know that one because I've been taking care of my dad for seven years as power of attorney and all those things, and many of you know the same thing in your lives. But what if I put off serving the Lord for the last seven years because I've been taking care of my dad? I had this thought the other day visiting my dad, who's 93 now. I thought, gosh, you know, when my dad went into uh, independent living and then assisted living, who would have ever thought he'd live like another 10 years and still be healthy as ever could be right now? My dad, Jennifer, yesterday was like, how's your dad? I said, he's great. We're talking about this and that. And Pop's just like, he's just rolling like a juggernaut, right? Like Father Abraham, right to 100. He's not even looking for an off-ramp or a rest stop. Pop is, was sharp and laughing and, yeah. Like, if I was waiting to serve the Lord because of family obligations, it, obviously there's a balance because, you know, 
if you neglect your marriage, it's no good to serve the Lord. That is your first ministry. And if you don't honor your father and mother, then you're breaking the law of God. And that's not a good thing to do. But honoring your father and mother looks like this when you're five, like this when you're 15, and like this when you're 65. It, it, it gets different seasons. So I do honor my father, and I did honor my mother before she stepped into eternity. But I can't put, what if I put worship generation on hold? What if I got up here in 2015 and said, you know, I've got to find another way. My dad's got this estate. I'm going to devote myself to taking care of my dad until he steps into eternity. Well, seven years later, here we are. And the cool thing is the new boss of where he lives at, Ivy, goes to our church. That's a wonderful turn of events. But the thing about taking care of Pop in this story is that it's really an excuse to, to put off the call of God. See, emotions can be misleading and they're not sustainable. And then excuses are something that puts off to tomorrow what needs to happen today. And with the Lord, it's always today. We talk about this, but with the Lord, it's always today. And anyone in the, the business world would tell you to be successful in business, it's today, not tomorrow. Anyone that knows anything about basic success 101 in life, apart from the Lord, will tell you, you got to take care of today. You have today. The world without Christ knows that. And how much more are those who understand the work and the urgency and the purposes of eternity? It's about today. And this is what I've seen. There's a thousand tomorrows for those who put it off till tomorrow. There's a thousand tomorrows for people who put off today what God's calling us to do today. It'll always be tomorrow. If the excuse today is that we'll do it tomorrow is tomorrow's just keep coming. And the longer you date tomorrow, the more you'll be married to her or him. Today is today. Here, now, today, this moment. Jesus wasn't looking for excuses. He wasn't looking for empty promises based upon emotion without discipline. And he wasn't looking for excuses based upon kicking things down the road. With the Lord, it's always today. So that's discipleship. It's today. We're to obey and follow the Lord today. And we obey and follow not because we feel emotionally like it's the day to do the right thing. Or I don't feel like doing this today. But we, we obey the Lord because to obey is the ultimate thing with the Lord. We obey. So we don't do the right thing today because we feel like doing the right thing. We do the right thing because it is the right thing. And we don't kick back to tomorrow serving the Lord because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We have today. That's why it's called discipleship. Discipleship is a word that has a base root in discipline. And the multitudes do what they want to do and are looking for a dog and pony show. But a disciple of Jesus Christ has to understand it's today without excuse to do the things of the Lord. And that's not robotic or insensitive. The Lord meets us there. But if, we, if, we, if we're go governed by emotions and serving the Lord, if it's fact, emotion, faith, or feelings, it just it all, it all goes wrong. It's got to be the consistency and the discipline. Well, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate because you go that way. And that way involves discipline and commitment and passion for today. So that's what we learn about going to the other side. The other side is the ministry and the calling of God on our life. And to get to the other side, we cannot be ruled by emotions in serving the Lord. And we cannot be putting off to tomorrow what the Lord is calling us to do today. 
And by the way, I've said this, whenever I'm really nervous about a ministry or something I'm doing that feels nervous or puts me kind of like, ah, oh, you know, like I'm a little nervous about sharing my faith in this situation, like a, whatever it might be, a memorial or the opposition. I always, I, this is what I do. I just tell myself, if I step into eternity tonight at 9 o'clock, then, then this can be my final moment, and I want it to shine. So it gives me boldness. It's a little trick I do with Joey Brand. I trick Joey Brand. I'm like, hey, Joey Brand. He's like, what? I'm like, hey, Joey Brand, you're going to be in eternity in five hours. Really? Yeah, so Joy Brand, don't be intimidated by their faces when you go in the situation where most of the people are opposed to what you're going to say about Jesus. Well, if I'm going to be in eternity in five hours, I probably should be bold, right? Yeah, it's your final clip before you step into the presence of the Lord. When the film is done before the Lord's going to be the last thing you see, you being bold. Well, I guess I'll be bold today, right? See, that's how it works. You just stir yourself up. You just remind yourself of the day of the Lord, and then you don't fear men. I just read in Proverbs today, the fear of man is what? A snare. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, the second thing we see is they got into the boat. Get in the boat. Now, so he weeds through this crowd, and then they get into the boat. So now he got into the boat, verse 23, and his disciples followed him. Again, there's only so many tickets on this boat. <laughs> However big this boat is, there's only so many tickets. It's like the Catalina Cruiser that my son Timmy drives, the Catalina Flyer. It is. He called me today. He's like, Dad, we're sold out tonight. We have two full boats tonight going to Catalina. That's good news if you're the captain. And you've got ownership in the snack bar. That's good news, right? <laughs> but there's only so many tickets, and they're sold out. There's only so many tickets on the boat with Jesus in this story. If you've got an excuse to bury Dad, then you're not getting on the boat. If you're looking for a safe, you know, the best cabin on the, on the ship, you're not, you're not, this ship isn't for you. This is the ship to the unknown. Where is the boat with Jesus going? Well, it would seem in the context, on quite a journey to the unknown. This is important because we're told in Hebrews that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who serve him must believe that he is and he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then we're told we walk by faith, we live by faith. It's faith. And anything less than faith is a rut. And if you live in a rut long enough, it becomes a grave. So God needs to stir us up. He needs to stir up the fallow ground of our heart. He needs to stir us up to keep living by faith. And by the way, when I visit my dad in memory care, with his little flock there in memory care, the little family there in memory care, and I ask myself, if I was here in this memory care, how would I be serving the Lord by faith? I ask myself that. If I'm 93 and sometimes sharp, sometimes fuzzy, what will faith look like for me in memory care? Will it be being, even if I've got dementia and you never know how that works out, but will, will everything in me be good so what comes out of me, whatever it is, it is good? Because what you get down the stretch usually is a fragment of what you are, and if you're mostly evil, you'll be quite evil when you only have that much left. But if you're mostly godly and good, then mostly what would come out would be good. Doesn't it stand to reason? Like if all the water's good, if there's only a little bit left in the bottle, it's still good water. But if the water's bad or murky, then you're going to get murky water. What will faith look like? See, so I've been thinking about this a lot as you get older. That as long as you're alive, there's a purpose in your life. As long as you're alive, there's a purpose in your life. And this is what I, I know whatever that purpose is, it'll be to glorify the Lord and to live by faith. I know that I'm going to want to be, I want to be serving the Lord with however cognitive I am. If I don't know who the president is, and I don't know what year it is in 2051, 
I do want to know who Jesus is. And I want to know that I'm serving Jesus in memory care this day. That's how I'm thinking as I reverse engineer what I see in front of me in the next 25 to 30 years. It'll be easier for my adult kids if I've been living by faith down the stretch. It'll make their life easier. It'll make the people who take care of me easier. When they got on this boat to go to the other side, Jesus is doing them a massive favor. He's trying to teach them faith. But of course, we see in the story they didn't learn a lesson because he said, oh, you of little faith. He commended the Roman centurion, who's not even a Jew, for great faith in the text last week. But tonight he goes, you have little faith. But these guys are going to change the world. They would live by faith. They would do amazing things by faith. But they're learning about faith, just like you and I are always learning about faith. We're always learning about faith. And by the way, sometimes when you're in the journey on the other side, to the other side with the Lord and stepping out and following, being a disciple and all those things, you might encounter a fierce storm, a tempest, a great tempest. Again, like if you give me a choice, if you say, hey, Joey, on Monday you're going to have a tempest. You want a small tempest or a great tempest? I'm going to take the small tempest. In fact, I prefer no tempest. And you say, it's going to be a great tempest. Oh, well, good thing uh, Jesus is in the boat with me. Yeah, Jesus is in the boat with you, but guess what? He's not talking to you. Wait, I'm going through a great tempest, and Jesus is silent? Yeah, he's sleeping. You know, great tempest easier when you hear the voice of the Lord really clear. I'm with you. We got this. I got your back. The angel of the Lord goes before you and behind you. Like, you know, like, ah. But sometimes when you're in a fierce tempest on a boat to the other side, you know what? Jesus is sleeping. Like you, hey, Jesus, are you sleeping? Your faith gets tested in the tempest, in the journey, in the life on the other side. Things get, you get tested. You get rocked. Things happen that rock your boat. But since Jesus promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, we've got to remember Jesus is always in the boat. It might seem like Jesus is sleeping in the boat, but Jesus is in the boat. In the Great Commission, he said, Lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, he reaffirms the promise from the book of Joshua, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, and applies it to New Testament disciples. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And obviously, the longer you live, you older people know this, there's times that you wonder if Jesus did forsake you and has abandoned you. Great pain and great silence are two things we don't like, but they test our faith, they strengthen our faith, and they refine our faith, and they do prove our faith. Because if we really believe that all things work together for good to those who love God, then we got to know, even if we're in a boat with a great tempest, that Jesus has this. And it might be great emotional pain, it might be great sorrow, it might be great loss of life, a loss of freedoms. I mentioned the other day about when I won't be able to drive anymore. Everyone was like, why are you talking about not being able to drive? I'm like, because I know the preview of coming attractions. I said, when I'm 80 in, in 2041, I probably won't drive. I'm a bad driver now. <laughs> Jennifer will be the first one to tell you. I used to say I'm not tied to go to traffic school a few times. It was in a conversation. Like, I'm, I'm a bad, I mean, I'm not the worst driver, but I'm a bad driver. Like, I can just imagine me at 80 driving. I just don't even, I don't even want to, I don't even want to picture it. But then I think about my kids driving, and I think, maybe I will drive when I'm 80, right? <laughs> see, we got to see, we got to see the future and think about the future. 
and God's working to make us live by faith. And, you know, we can't be afraid of the future. We can't be afraid of growing old. We can't be afraid of losing certain freedoms and, and, and losing this, losing that. By the time you step in eternity, you're letting go of everything. The people you love and whatever wealth you have, you're leaving behind. Your bad health, your good health, you're letting go of all of it, and you're moving on to glory. So I think one of the lessons that God gives people who live a longer lifespan into that 70s and 80s is to learn to let go. And you find when you let go of certain things, then you can let go of other things, and after a while, you get pretty good at letting go. So I figure if I can let go of stuff in my 60s, it'll probably help me let go of things in my 70s. And then, you know, when, when I'm reduced to like one floor and a radius of, of 50 feet where I eat, walk outside, get some fresh air, and people take care of me, I watch the TV and fall asleep like everyone else in the room, well, okay, I've let go, and it's not, I'm not fighting it, and I know the Lord's coming for me in glory. Now, that's a journey to the other side, and that journey means letting go, losing and letting go. Losing's a big part of winning, right? Any great winner will tell you they did a lot of losing. You learn from losing, and when you let go and you lose, it seems like I lost. You lost that situation. But with the Lord, you never really lose because you learn from what seemed to be a loss, and it becomes triumph because all things work together for good to those who love God. They had little faith, but he, he rebuked the winds. He took care of business. He took care of it. He had their back. And just know this. Whatever great tempest arises from here to eternity in our lives, young or old alike, and however helpless we feel with the Lord, we do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because we feel like it. We do it today because today is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice in it. And we know whether it seems like he's at, on the captain's wheel, like Timmy driving the flyer today. He sent me a picture of the view from the Catalina flyer going across the channel. Yeah, there's Timmy's job right there, bus driver. That's what I call him, bus driver. You get the big ship now. They got like 400 people on it. Just got it out of dry dock. He's pumped. Or whatever the view might be, is Jesus, is Jesus in command taking us to Catalina on the flyer? Or why do I feel like we're on a, like a tug going like this and he's not even on the boat? Whatever it is, he's there. If Jesus is sleeping, just know he's still there. He knows. He, he's got you. It's a life of faith. It will be tested, and storms will come. But the other side is our destiny, and, and we, we, we'll find out what's on the other side. Just, just get in the boat with Jesus. And then finally we see that they're exceedingly fierce and unwelcoming people. They were exceedingly fierce and unwelcoming people. I put the two groups together. The two crazy guys, which the other Gospels tell us, they were uh, naked and out of their mind. And um, I don't know, like, if you really think about this, because there are a lot of homeless people in Southern California, and, and most of them are very friendly. And in many cases, they are. And if you walk the beach bike path in Huntington Beach, there's plenty of homeless people. And there's like a regular, there's this little spot underneath the tree over there. He's there every day. There's the woman that does this, and there's this guy and that guy, and you see new ones and old ones, and... But, it, you know, like uh, about two months ago, Jennifer and I were on the bike path, the Laura bike path between 9th Street and Dog Beach, and we we're using one of those bathrooms, which we try not to do, but, you know, sometimes you just, I got to use the bathroom. And a guy came out, and he was, he was a scary person, and he was homeless, and he was scary, and I immediately just kind of like got between me and Jennifer because she was the one using the bathroom, which never happens, but that's the way it goes sometimes. And uh, I was like, this guy, you know, you learn, like, like if you're a policeman, like threat, non-threat, security. You know what I'm saying? Like you just kind of know, like this guy, this guy is, this guy is, a, this guy's a dangerous guy. And I, and I'm, I'm older. I'm like, but I got between myself and Jennifer, 
and I just kind of stood by the door, and I, I wasn't going to create any situation where this guy could come between me and my wife. And I, I, I watched him like a, like a shepherd watching the flock as he rode off. And, you know, I had the look, and I'm like, I'm not looking for trouble, but I'm not backing down right here. That was a scary moment. I'm on a nice walk with my wife, and it felt kind of scary. Now, I've been on the bike path where you see guys changing. I've walked by teenagers like, put some clothes on, huh? Pull your surf towel up. You know, like, put, you know, you see a lot of times guys are in their boxers, you know, they're freezing. I'm like, dude, put some, put some. I used to always, like, I almost got in a big fight one time with the kids, and to be like, Dad, stop it. And Luke's like, I got your back, man, you know. I'm like, dude, put some clothes on, man. I'm walking by with my wife. These guys are like, put your clothes on. It's public. But now it's like, you don't, you know, you pick your battles when you get older, and I don't do that anymore. So I read this story, and I think of someone like that scary guy without his clothes on coming after me and my wife. That's these guys. These guys were exceedingly terrifying. They weren't just somewhere where you just kind of go like, oh, hey, how's it? They weren't like that. You didn't go anywhere near them. These are terrifying people. And this is the ministry on the other side. Jesus wanted his disciples to see this, to see crazy naked men out of their mind, to see 2,000 pigs running down a hill demon-possessed. They needed to see it because they needed to know ministry is spiritual. It's a spiritual battle. It's supernatural. There's things that are unclean and difficult and ugly and evil in the human experience, and the kingdom of God advances into those dark places and brings the light and life and hope of Christ to them. Things are dark and messy on the other side more often than not. But if that wasn't enough, you feel pretty good about, well, they shouldn't be raising pigs anyways, and these guys got their clothes on. It's a happy ending. Not really, because the city comes out and says, could you please leave? We choose naked, crazy men and pigs over you. We prefer to see this guy out of his mind terrifying us than in a right mind with his clothes on. And what can you say? That's how we began this study, talking about that's what some people choose. That's what some people choose for the woman or the man in the mirror. That's what some people choose for their home that's in chaos and disorder. That's what some people choose for their work and the people they work with. And that's what some governments choose for their reign of dominion that they have, however brief it is. It's hard to serve other people and see the good of people in the right minds and still have people wanting you to get out. And when you're serving the Lord, and this is really the final thought on this story tonight, but when you're serving the Lord, Jesus is teaching you how to serve him. We, we do the Jesus style. We learn from Jesus. We minister to people. We do the best we can to meet people where they're at, clean, unclean, friendly, unfriendly. But ministry and the human experience is, is very messy and can be very dark. I commend all people there in law enforcement. Law enforcement is very difficult. If you know anyone that's really involved in law enforcement, they deal with a lot of dark, difficult, the worst things of humanity. When my son Luke was going to be a cop, he did a drive along in Long Beach for one night, and he decided he didn't want to be a cop. Eight hours on patrol in Long Beach on a Friday night, he's like, that's not what I want to do for my life. That's just not, I don't want to see that six days a week. That's just not for me. That's just not what I, it was good. It was a good lesson for him. It took the romance out of being a cop and brought reality to it. 
And, you know, ministry might have a romance and going out to be a missionary or serve the Lord this way or go off and do this. Like, it's exciting. But, you know, like, there's, there's stuff that happens. And sometimes you do a really good work in someone's life and they ask you to leave. You're the pastor. And sometimes you do, you give everything you can to somebody in Jesus' name. And in the end, they ask you to leave. And I'll be honest, that hurts. But you got to remember, they asked Jesus to leave too. So the other side is to get us from the comfort zone to the place of faith. The other side is to get us from the temporal to the eternal. The other side is to transform us in the boat journey, in the cost of discipleship, in the, in the journey itself, and what's on the other side. It's to make us more like Jesus and to be more heavenly minded. That we become more and more people of faith and good fruit. And it will take us to the unknown, but I can promise all of us this, particularly in the context of wrapping up the year, it'll give you the legacy you want to leave this planet with. A legacy of faith. A legacy of faith when your name comes up that you are a person of faith and you are willing to follow Jesus to the other side. And you were fruitful there whether it was received or not. That's the kingdom. That's the gospel. In Jesus' name.